Welcome to Honestly, the show that tells. I'm Paul Bombush, poet, pontificator, and purple people eater. And I'm Billy Criswell, a modern feminist, prodigious multitasker, and bossy Italian wife. Today's show is brought to you by The Flea That Bit the Dog. Our topics are sexism and dreaming of food. feminist, right? We're talking about sexism today, and there's a lot of interesting kind of news surrounding feminism, and um, I would just say sexism, because to me, what's happened with um, the things that have come up with Gloria Steinem and Madeleine Albright, um, it's saying that while Gloria Steinem, in case you live under a rock, um, Gloria Steinem came out and said that young women supporting Bernie Sanders are doing that because that's where the boys are. <laughs> and let me just say, if I were a pretty young straight woman, I would probably do that too. I mean, I would. She I would totally. She apologized. I, I would. I would cynically abandon my political views just to flirt with hot guys. But that's just me, everyone. Yeah, but that's because you're not. Like I know, you know. That's because it's just a dream. <laughs> and then um, Madeline Albright said there is a special place in hell for um, <laughs> women who don't support other women. And and before we get too into this this segment, um, we maybe we do usually refrain from using any sort of profanity because we feel like it cuts down on our arguments. But there may be some profane words in today's topic as it relates because we kind of felt that we couldn't necessarily take those out. Yeah, because um, we want to talk about slurs that are used yeah, against so women. Yeah, so earmuffs, if you have children in the room, um, please remove them because this is not, this is an adult conversation today. Um, I have a little disclaimer of my own, too. Um, I am not a woman, and... <laughs> you I don't not, say! <laughs> I've not lived my life in the shoes of a woman, um, so my perspective on this topic of sexism is limited. That doesn't mean I don't have opinions, but Billy, you have the right to punch me in the face um, if I say something too offensive. I was going to say slap me, but that would have been a little sexist, don't you think? Of course, yeah. Well, so there's... So there's a lot to talk about in this topic, um, but in direct relation to uh, the comments of, by Gloria Steinem and Madeleine Albright, um, I I do find the things, I think the women on both sides, conservative and liberal, have all collectively found these statements to be extremely offensive for several reasons. But the reasons aside, I feel like it's a great example of feminism doubling back on itself. So it goes so far that it comes back and is, is sexist in a way because, you know, it's assuming that women don't have, you know, free minds and it's presumptuous this is my my whole thing about feminism and um the feminist movement i'm very much a feminist i believe in women's rights i think it's very important but it's presumptuous to tell women how to be better women because the idea of feminism is to create the freedom from convention not to create more convention itself so these statements they make us into the thing that we fear and the thing that we hate so I would say just to answer it off the bat is, you know, this sexism um, that women face, sometimes it comes from within. I actually stood up and defended um, not so much Steinem, but Madeleine Albright for what she said uh, on Facebook. And I got some likes from young feminists. And here was my defense. I This older generation of feminists, they had to push through so many barriers to mm-hmm. get to where they are. And Madeleine Albright, first female secretary of state. Um, and it's kind of hard for anyone in our generation to imagine the kind of overt, in-your-face sexism right. that they faced at every step well, of the that's way. that's true, absolutely. And they, someone like Madeleine Albright, I'm sure, was able to push through it because they thought, I have to set an example. I have to break the glass ceiling. Mm-hmm. I have. There was this emphasis on being the first, right? right. The first C- female CEO, the first this, the first right. that. And what they're now basically saying is, 
yes, you should vote for Hillary because she's a woman. Because, damn it, we need the first female president. It's unacceptable that all of our presidents have been men. And uh, you can sympathize with Bernie's message more than Hillary's message and his politics more than Hillary's politics. But this dream of having the first female president should take precedence over everything else. Now, now that, I, I, that but I see, is where I disagree with right, that. And you can, I, and, and I, I, if I were you, I would disagree too. Like I'm imagining if, if the first gay candidate, uh, serious candidate for president were running, I would feel offended by the notion that I should support him just because I'm gay. Right. But I, I do think there, uh, Madeleine Albright's position is is valid. You can disagree with it, but I think it's not totally crazy to say we just at all costs we need the first female president. It's, and but this is what it comes down to is there's a difference in philosophy, right? So I feel like the original feminist movement, <clears throat> you know, and especially people like Gloria Steinem who really did a lot to further that I think there were some places where it kind of missed the boat. And I think that feminism in its earliest stages was a little too exclusive, right? Um, a, a great example of this would be, I just recently watched this amazing independent lens on PBS. It's called No Mas Babies. And it's about this... Um, <laughs> pretty widespread. I mean, it went from coast to coast, a sterilization program for people of color and low-income people, um, which disproportionately affected Hispanic women in California. What's interesting about this is that the women... Uh, who were sterilized, basically against their will. They were forced to sign uh, consent to tubal ligation in the middle of active labor just before they were given a C-section. In documents, uh, most of them did not speak English, that were in English. This happened in the 60s and 70s when the feminist movement was going on, and the Chicana women came out and said... um, we have a right to have babies. We don't want to be forcibly sterilized. Well, the feminist movement did not want to hear that because the Chicana ladies wanted to have a waiting period that if you sign consent to have a tubal ligation, you should have a waiting period to make sure that that's what you want to do because this thing was happening to them. Well, the feminist movement didn't want anything to do with that because what were they lobbying for? I want a tubal ligation. I want it when I say I want it. Uh-huh. I don't want to wait. I want my birth control. I want So there's... A huge um, disenfranchisement of certain women within the feminist movement, which has left a gap. And I feel Mm. like women of the original movement, like Gloria Steinem, like Madeleine Albright, they don't quite understand that, yes, look, we want a world that's progressive, that where women are equal. But, you know, there's a... There's also, this has to be a full rounded conversation, right? So we can't talk about birth control and tubal ligation on demand without talking about the flip side of that. And the flip side of this issue with Hillary running is that I, as a woman, have a choice. I don't have to vote for her just because she's a woman. And I'm a Bernie supporter and people know that I'm, I'm a Bernie supporter, I will vote for whoever the Democratic nominee is because at the end of the day, I believe that whoever the Democratic nominee is going to be far superior to whoever the Republican nominee is, and and that's fine. But I happen to have a different set of ideals. It's just simple. Hillary's candidacy has raised a lot of interesting issues about sexism. Um... And if if I were in your shoes, I might be a little frustrated by her being the first, you know, really realistic candidate for president because there is something about her that is a bit grating. Right. And you could call grating a slightly sexist term even. And when she when the other day on, on TV I heard a, a woman describe Hillary's voice as shrill when Mm. Hillary talks loud. Now, shrill is this very loaded, uh, commonly sexist term. 
But I will say that when when Hillary's voice rises to a certain volume, it it's it's not a pretty sound. Mm-hmm. And there are women who are able to project loudly. Um and not sound quite so, I'm putting this word in quotes, shrill. So, so you've got that, the fact that her voice, I'm sorry, is, can be a little shrill, her right? Her personality and, but is also, not warm and fuzzy. And also, another sexist trope is calling women two-faced, moody, you know, they, they change like the moon. Well, with Hillary, again, you could argue she actually is a little two-faced. I mean, Elizabeth Warren told this story about how Hillary had been uh, against a bankruptcy bill, or I can't, I can't, or yeah, no, I know exactly switched her position on a bankruptcy bill. When she was the first lady, she had Bill veto her husband veto this bill, and then when she was a senator, she was lobbied and she changed her mind and passed the bill. And she has changed on some other issues, too. But this is the issue with her. It's her policy. Her policies... Look, do I... uh, We were talking about archetypes, female archetypes, right? There's basically two. You're either... If you're like... The Madonna or the whore is the famous dichotomy. Yeah, but it's... I mean, in the modern version of that would be like, if you're... uh, Let's just take Hillary Clinton and Sarah Palin. Right, these are two very diametrically opposed women. Mm-hmm. So you're either the bulldog or the bitch, like Hillary Clinton, or you're the pretty face little vixen. You're the slut, like Sarah Palin. Mm. These are kind of the two, and it's so easy to cut down those archetypes, um, kind of based on the fact that they're women. I mean, it's a man would never say you would never look at like one of the you wouldn't look at Marco Rubio and go, oh, what a playboy. You know, like, you, you just, right. it, it wouldn't happen. You know, it's just, men face a different set of challenges, and, you know, they're more established in their power. I think that men are afraid of the power of women, maybe rightly so. I mean, I think we're great, but I just don't think in this particular issue, I don't think it's Hillary's femaleness that is her biggest hindrance. I think it's her personality. It's definitely part of a hindrance. It always will be whenever you have a strong women. Because we see, especially on the internet, how whenever a woman, a female commentator speaks up, expresses her opinion, the kind of uh, hate tweets and vitriol spewed at women on the internet is just horrific and nothing comparable like that happens with men and I have a theory that this anonymity is what allows is what brings out the sexist demons in a lot of men being able to get away with saying nasty things And, and this happens in this happens in, in, in cities a lot. I so I have a I have a theory uh, which I'll just talk about quickly. Like I do think there 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 are some feminists who I would describe as microaggression feminists who see who sees on every potentially little sexist thing. And the latest one, uh, during the Super Bowl there was an ad with uh, Kevin Hart where he played uh, this father who was very protective of his daughter going out on a date, and he he loaned his new car to the uh, girl's boyfriend so that he could track the movements of them when they went out on the date. And it was an ad for this sort of car locator device. But a lot, um, several women on the internet seized on that and said that's very sexist because. Uh, women, young women should be able to own their sexuality and this trope of the father who's protective is offensive. But I thought to myself, really? I mean, that's... If if you can't make a joke about a father kind of hating the guts of his daughter's boyfriend, then what can you make a joke about? Yeah, I mean, it's But then I thought I sort of put my, you know, other hat on, and I thought, well, if there were an offensive gay gay stereotype of, like, a gay hairdresser in a commercial, I can imagine being offended by that. But my point is, I think you have to pick your battles to some extent, because there's a risk that if you 
if you fight every little battle like that, you're going to come across as whiny and without a sense of humor. And of course, that is a sexist trope. So you're kind of conforming to that. But well, to make a so sorry, just to make a long story short, my whole theory is that a lot of these, a lot of these these microaggression feminists live in cities. The people who write articles for Slate.com or Salon, where they talk about the latest Kevin Hart commercial or something. And I think women who live in, in cities, the ones that I I'm friends with, they're barraged on a daily basis by catcalling and harassment. You can't, it can't go through one day without um, uh, an insulting, dehumanizing catcalling incident. And so I think it's no coincidence that a lot of those commentators on the internet are from cities and they have this intense chip on their shoulder because cities provide this anonymity for men to harass them and it's just a daily struggle that I'm not sure you living here in Delaware face as much I don't face it that much I have lived in cities it did happen to me more there when I've been on vacation in cities it happens to me there I mean but that to me is kind of the least of our worries uh, as far as like establishment sexism goes, I mean, catcalling is one thing, but to me, that's just uh, a side note or the cherry on top of a already loaded subject. Because, you know, <clears throat> a lot of these stereotypes that you talk about when you come out, and then okay, that's whiny, and then this is that. I mean, these stereotypes they kind of exist for a reason. They exist because partially they're true. They exist because it's easy. It's an easy target. Um, so, I, you know, I think some of those things we just, we do, we have to just push past that. I don't think that being catcalled gives a favorable view to, you know, women won't have a more favorable view of men in that way, but it's, you know, I, I think it, it's improving. I think some of the things are improving. What unfortunately is of more concern to me is the way that, and this does get back to in a way of what Madeleine Albright is talking about, is the way that women treat women. Because the, the most, and we were t- you were talking about the internet and what I wanted to say was that it's not really the men behind the screen who are the most vicious to like women bloggers like myself. Um, it's other women. I found this fascinating when you were telling me about this. I had an experience when I was... Um, when I was pregnant, where I was treated very poorly by a doctor, what I thought was very poorly, who he kind of took this alarmist bent and kind of gave me the, well, don't, you know, he thought that I may be having placenta previa, which is when your placenta is too close to your cervix, um, which I did not have, by the way. And I kind of knew, I kind of had this intuitive feeling that I didn't have it. And he was being very alarmist and was like, I'm going to put you on pelvic rest. Don't have sex. And I was like, well, I mean, what's, you know, what's going to happen if I have sex? You could kill your baby. And, and I said, you know, look, you need to like calm down. I'm not about this kind of thing. You need to like calm down and talk to me like I'm a person. But he really kind of refused to do that. Instead, turned to my husband, who was in the room, and started talking to him instead. Like I wasn't even there. I mean, it was very, very offensive to me. I was angry and I blogged about this saying, you know, already people are treating me like I'm like I don't exist. Like the only thing that matters is that I'm pregnant. So screw the rest of it. We don't even need real information. We're just going to decide that this is what's happening to you without any real evidence. And then we're going to treat you like a human incubator. And so I put this I put a piece out. It got picked up on blog her, which is a. Uh, women, all women's website I'm a part of, which then got reposted on Baby Center. And I found it. Um, I don't even know how I found it. I, but it was like, it happened very quickly. I found it and I clicked on it because I was kind of excited that it had gotten picked up, at which point I got very unexcited because several women, more than 50, I would estimate, um, were reposting the link, saying many derogatory things about me, one of which was new to me um, that kept getting repeated over and over and over. And it said, look at this bitch. I want to cunt punch her. Which to me was like, 
to me, it was shocking. I mean, I remember it was so shocking that I wasn't even upset about it. Are you sure it was a woman writing it? It was all women. This is a complete, this is an exclusively How do you woman. Know? Well, you don't know anything on the internet, but I'm just, just going to say there's not men trolling pregnancy boards I don't to talk know. about their pregnancies. Men are creepy. Um, and I've since had multiple... I mean, I was eviscerated on the internet by women. Not just by those women, by other women, too. Women on Blogger, lots of women. And, you know, we see this a lot, actually. Um, I mean, even just as a small example that people will probably hate because people hate being called out. But, like, Kim Kardashian, we know that she gains weight more than other women when she's pregnant. Why do people feel that it is okay to call a pregnant woman fat to make fun of her to say she's a horrible human and we hope her baby dies i mean like why do people feel that it's okay when women are kind of at the peak of their existence when they're pregnant to say these amazingly horrific things i mean for someone to say wow you're already a terrible mother and the baby isn't born yet and i feel sorry for that baby that is a a really terrible thing to say now to take that a step further and say you're such a horrible mother i wish violence on you that's insane to me it is insane the internet's such an can be such an ugly place i I, I, this sort of transitions to something else I want to talk about, which is the double standard of focusing on the appearance of any prominent woman. Now, I, I have kind of mixed feelings about this issue because women do spend more time on their appearance than men. Uh, lots of women put on makeup. Um, they dress more colorfully more interestingly often whereas the male fashion like hasn't changed for a hundred so hundred years right you know, and so my point is it's kind of to an extent it's human nature to look at like Hil- Hil- what Hillary's wearing on any given day the way she has her hair done because all the men are wearing these boring suits what is there to even talk which about which is interesting can I just take a beat to talk about how in um disharmony that is with the natural order of things because when you see males in um the animal kingdom the animal kingdom they're always much more yeah. flamboyant because they have to attract the females yeah i and it, it, like the Isn't male that so interesting the male cardinal which is that bright red color yeah. and the female is not and but this is really interesting cuz i if if you look at traditional cultures tribal cultures the men are more ornate. They not necessarily more ornate, but certainly as or, as, ornate. as ornate. And you see this wonderful footage of young men by the river uh, paint, uh, painting each other mm-hmm. with with clay and with these elaborate designs. So I think it's very unnatural in our society that men are like the drones with this very boring clothing, often. Uh, and women are the colorful ones. I think it's very strange, and I also think it's strange. One of the weirdest things about our society is women often wearing just less clothing, revealing more skin than men. If you go out on a Saturday night in the Mm -hmm. city, you see the boyfriend with his button-down shirt and his jeans, and the woman is dressed like something that my grandmother probably would have called a lady of the night. (laughs) And all all the power to her. In fact, I think it's unnatural. The unnatural part of that to me isn't isn't so much women revealing more it's men not revealing more right in in tribal cultures you would have not you wouldn't have this neurosis around the male body as much as we do and then and then on the flip side of that there's the fact that if a woman is breastfeeding in public that is then shamed because no one wants to see that. It's bizarre. You know, yeah. it's a there's a huge double standard. All that I can say to that is that in my household, I'm not perfect. Like, I don't want to say, like, oh, I never comment on anybody's body or whatever. I do. I catch myself. I'm human, just like the rest mm-hmm. of us. But now that I have a child, I think I try to have the standard of not commenting on people 
unless I'm saying something positive, but even I try not to even say too many positive things either, especially about people on TV, because like my husband's very like, he'll say like, whoa, she is not good looking or oh, and I try to say, you know, let's try to like take this language just down a notch especially like if I notice it a lot yeah um just because in raising children it's like I don't want her to think the standard which we measure every person we see is by the way that they look I mean I'm not gonna lie like to be born ugly is a terrible thing like because you do you don't get treated very well but I don't think you know I don't think that's the only thing that matters to be born ugly that's gonna be the title of my autobiography to be born ugly you're definitely not ugly um but the, you know, there's an interesting thing that I didn't know about until recently. Somebody had to tell me when one of my friends told me that there's this movement, and I guess it's especially popular on college campuses, where the girls try to dress as ugly as they can because they want the attention on their minds instead of hmm. what they're wearing. And I found it very interesting. At first, I like bristled. I was like, this is stupid. Like, just put on some regular, put on jeans and a t shirt, you know? But I mean, I I do think there's value in that because I do think that, you know, we really do need to have an emphasis on people valuing other things. I tend to joke, you know, I don't, I'm not particularly flashy. I don't wear a lot of makeup. I've always dated men who told me I was beautiful with or without makeup. You are. Thank you. But I just, it's not the biggest deal to me. I like to look good. I like fashion. It's important to me. So does your husband, by the way. Yeah, we both. You have that in common. Your husband is an example of the bright cardinal as opposed to the boring cardinal. He's very good looking. Um, But, you know, all that aside, I also try to tell myself that it's not the most important thing like no one ever died of wearing a bad outfit like you know it's just not the most I don't want to put all of my emphasis there because I have other things of value to offer as well um so I think that's important do you find chivalry sexist for instance the notion that the man is commonly expected to propose marriage to the woman and hold the door open and Mm. often take the check during dinner. Does that... Would you wish for a world in which it was like 50-50 women proposing to men, men proposing to women? Or do you think there are some things that will just never change and you don't find them offensive? I would wish for a world where it's 100-100. I feel like everybody should just be nice. (laughs) But I mean, I don't think, you know, I, I don't think that there's any one right answer to that. There's no right answer to that question. You know, for me, um, I personally was proposed to, I thought it was great. It was a very romantic moment of my life. Um, if I thought he would have said yes, I probably would have proposed to him, but I knew that it was important to him that he was in the driver's seat of that particular issue. Um, as far as having children, it was 100% my decision as to when and how many and the ways in which that happened. Um, some people might do that differently. I don't know. Um, you know, currently my husband is, his income is larger than mine. Um, but that's only if you consider the fact that I'm raising a child at home to not have as much value as his current salary. So, I mean, the way that people set up their relationships needs to work for them. At the end of the day, my husband and I are equals. And neither one of us holds more power than the other. And that's the most important thing. That's the key. You know, I defer to him on certain decisions. He defers to me on certain decisions. We have very, very different styles and skill sets. So, but, you know, if, if somebody finds those things offensive, if someone wants to, you know, toe the line in a different way, then they deserve to be with somebody who feels the same as them, you know? When do you experience sexism these days in your da- in your daily life when do you most commonly experience sexism the one thing that drives me nuts that i think is very sexist is when my husband tells me to calm down or relax um. and i always say to him that's sexist don't i'm not a hysterical woman because i'm asking you to do whatever or because I'm talking passionately about something that really bothers do me. Do you tell him that, to, I, do you tell him to calm down if he gets loud and upset? No. I I don't think so. 
I don't know. Are you sure? I don't know. No, I'm not sure. Um, but normally when I when he says it to me, I ask him, I say, Don't don't say that to me. And then sometimes I ask him, I say, When in the history of you telling me to calm down, has that ever made well, me calm down? Well, that's the real problem. It <laughs> doesn't in work. The world? But you know, the time in my life when I experienced the most sexism was when I was pregnant. Hands down. Talk about that. I mean, if one more doctor had told me, one more male doctor had told me when I was pregnant that they had done that a thousand times, I was going to just hit the roof. I mean, it was very polarizing when I was pregnant. Why did that irritate you? Well, how many times has a male been pregnant? I don't know of any. Oh. You know? And they wanted to tell me how I felt instead of me telling them how I felt and what I was experiencing. Mm. They wanted to be in the driver's seat. Mm. Well, I don't care how great an obstetrician you are. You know, you're never, ever going to understand what I'm going through if you're a man. You don't have the ability to get pregnant. And I feel like it was, you know, it was so striking to me, the differences between men and women when I was pregnant. And even still, like, while I'm breastfeeding, you know, I I think... There were there are a lot of ways in which men try to write that off. And so for me, like, you know, becoming a mother, I think, has made my thoughts about feminism more encompassing and more well-rounded um, because I think that we have the right to our full body processes and to do on our own terms. And I feel like, you know, I I feel like a lot of male doctors at the point at which I was pregnant kind of tried to tamp that down. Like, no, no, I'm going to tell you. Like, and I was like, no, no, buddy, <laughs> you're not going to tell me anything. Like, if you want to listen to me and we could do this together, I'm for that. But I'll tell you, I did not meet a single male doctor who was willing to toe that line. Now, every... Calm down, Billy. Calm every down. woman, <laughs> every woman midwife that I met with asked questions and listened and then kind of like gave me like some feedback or, you know, it was a much more, uh, it was a much more together, like, okay, you know, we're going to figure this out. Let's think about this. Let's think about that. And the men were just like, this is what it is. I know you don't know you. Have you ever been pregnant before? Okay. Well, I've done this a thousand times. And one thing I know you're passionate about, and I agree with you on this is the sexism that's implicit in some of our national policies or lack of national policies, such as paid maternity leave. Right. Things like that. Um, or, I, or, or government-funded daycare. Yeah. Things that other countries... Just have. have. We're the, like, the only major developed country that doesn't have a national paid maternity leave policy. Right. I mean... And it comes from this assumption that... Oh, women don't... It's a choice to work. Women don't really have to work. If they wanted to, they could just have their husband be the breadwinner and stay home. But they're choosing to work, so we don't need to make special exceptions for them, which is totally bonkers. Which is bonkers, because not all women have husbands, first of all. These days, yeah. For You know, uh, and and incomes are not what they used to be. Inflation is up. Jobs are down. But... uh, the thing is, when you talk about any of this, you know, yeah, we can have, and, and we were debating this the other night, and we can have all the great ideas in the world, but there is one thing that holds us back, and it's capitalism. Capitalism and democracy do not have to go hand in hand. You know, capitalism, when you answer to the dollar, and the dollar is the most important thing, it, it comes before people, mm. and that's, I feel, the Probably the biggest hindrance to women. And this might be part of the support for Bernie among so many young I mean, for me, I think a lot of women can look at the system and say, it's broken. What I don't want to hear someone tell me is we have to work within the parameters of the system. No. Blow the system up. I don't want to work like this. You know, to me... I feel that I've had to go kind of on the alternative if I wanted to have the life I want to have, which I do. Um, It's very troubling to me the way our society devalues people in the name of corporations. I think women are disproportionately affected, just like lots of other groups who are, let's be honest, disproportionately affected by that. I don't think that we can make real movement in, in feminism unless we radicalize our lifestyles. I mean, there is just nothing more important than people and family and children. And you hear people in the Republican Party say it all the time. Our children are the future. 
they they, they want more babies. They're pro-life. Right. They, you know, but all then they this. don't support equal pay for women. Right. So I mean, there, we have a crisis. And, you know, feminism is one piece of that puzzle that I think, you know, women could get a lot more traction if we could just settle on the fact that we're all worth something. And and that something is that we're all worth more than money. But that's a different argument, so. <laughs> I, I, I hesitate to even bring up the issue of reverse sexism because I don't think there is a lot of it. Uh, sexism toward men, but there is a little of it. For instance, like on this has been going on for decades and decades. All, in all the commercials, the the husband is depicted as stupid, and the wife, commonly the housewife, is like the smart, shrewd one, and the husband is sort of this bumbling dog. This has been a big pet peeve of Bill Maher's. Um, but then again, I do kind of think women are smarter than men. So, but, and I, I also, my, my dear mother, she, she likes to say men are dogs. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think what she's saying there is men are, men are simple creatures, Mm -hmm. right? Um, women are, are more complex and, but I don't, I think that's perhaps that's true, but it's really dependent on the person. I mean, to me, one of the most detrimental phrases in our society towards men is the phrase man up. Yeah. What does that even mean? But in a way, okay, so this is interesting. The kind of um, attacks on men, calling men wimps or sissies, which is how, which is what Donald Trump did to Jeb Bush. (laughs) Uh, Who incidentally is a sissy. (laughs) uh, Yeah. And it's, I keep, I know, I know. And, and I, but what's interesting to me about that line of attack against men that they're not macho enough is, I, I, in a way, that's sexist toward women. In a way, it's still it's using. Um, well, yeah, it's using what is that a euphemism? Basically, you're calling them girls. Like right, being a right. girl is, it, is a bad right, thing. Exactly, that's what I'm trying to say. So yeah. even that, that's not really reverse but, sexism. And here's the here's the thing: is that you know when when we do that. And especially, you know, I, I see it all the time, like at the park, for example. Or, um, you know, when my kid falls down and, I, you know, I say, come on, get up. You're fine. You can do it. You know, like I'm encouraging instead. Like, I don't want her to, you know, I don't want her to feel like every time she falls down, she has to melt into a puddle. But mothers of boys will say, come on, get up, get up. I know. Get, don't, I cry. Don't, don't cry. Don't cry. Don't cry. There's nothing wrong with crying. What's wrong is telling your kid not to because that's somehow perceived as weakness. Well, we have such a machismo problem in we our do. culture. We, really we, do. we This is one theme, theme it, of our podcast. And, and it contributes to to the sexist issue, I think, in some very covert ways. And, right. and I think those covert ways are more dangerous right. than just outright saying, being a girl sucks. Because if you have this um, ide fix of what a man should be, um, this... Steroid-ridden football player. I, <laughs> gosh, I mean, the Super Bowl to me is like the height of machismo. It is the height of America's gender binary insanity. And and when you and so if you have this stereotype of what a man should be, this bro, hey bro, you know, with, with no <laughs> texture, with no sensitivity, then it's kind of like the 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 inevitable flip side of that is the cheerleader stereotype. You've got mm-hmm. you've got the football player and you've got the cheerleader and those are the ideals in a way right. in America. And you watch Fo- gosh, Fox News the bro central it is and and all and the women are made up like barbie dolls uh and i i there's like a company-wide policy that if you go on fox news you have to go to their makeup room first where roger ailes has this image of how every woman should look and it's always the hair hanging down like in front of their shoulders and they've got just uh, crazy amounts of makeup on and so um it's. I would say that the 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 machismo problem and this unfortunate image of what a man should be is intertwined with the flip side, which is this Barbie doll stereotype. It's all enmeshed. Yeah. I'm 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 ready to give my bottom line. How go, about you? Go for it. Well, my bottom line is that sexism is a is a pervasive issue, and 
good uh, to me ideal feminism is about having choices and not just supporting someone because they're female so i think we have to be careful and wise about how we make our decisions and you know let's not let's not eat ourselves on this feminism thing you know it let's keep it simple you know women are just as important as men we're unique we're different in many ways it's okay to be different we don't you know we can be equal without having to be exactly the same um and because i am a unique woman sometimes my choices are not going to go with the flow of the way the older feminists think it should be and while I want to see a woman president just as much as every other woman in America. More than seeing a woman president, I want to see someone who is really for me. And just because someone's a woman doesn't mean that they're going to champion my causes. So that's my bottom line. My bottom line is just acknowledging my male privilege. I do think it's important to acknowledge privilege. Frankly, I think straight people should acknowledge their straight privilege, which is a whole other topic, but we're not there yet as a society where straight people are willing to admit that their lives are easier than gay people's for any number of reasons. But it's important for everyone to acknowledge, white people to acknowledge their their their, their white privilege, and I'm right now acknowledging my male privilege that I, I, I don't have to if I walk through a city, I'm not getting catcalled. I'm not fearing for my life if I'm walking down in down the city and then down, down a dark alley. I can say things on the internet and not be met with that maelstrom of sexism. Um, if I'm if I'm hired, I I might be able to expect to get a little bit more money as a salary than my female coworkers. There are lots of things that that give me male privilege. I it is true on the other hand that you that boys are really struggling in our society right now. They're not doing as well as in school as girls are. Um, in uh, in in colleges, there are more more women being let in from what I understand in each successive class of people because the, the young men aren't as prepared aren't getting as good grades so there is there is a crisis going on with boys right now uh, however at so many levels uh, men have it easier and I freely admit that and I have a tremendous amount of compassion for women who have to deal with sexism large and small um, on a daily basis. Okay. Well, on that note, we will be right back with our next segment, Dreaming of Food. We're talking food, folks, because really, what else is there to talk about? Uh, yeah, Billy my, and I... My favorite. <laughs> and we're just going to have a kind of casual, freewheeling conversation about our relationship with food, our favorite memories of food, the best meals we've ever had, because why not? Um, what is the best meal you've had in your entire life? My entire life yeah. was definitely a pesto gnocchi when I was in Italy. I'll never forget it. It was just so good. I mean, there's. I've been searching for it ever since. Have you ever tried making it? I have made my own gnocchi. I have made my own pesto. But it's just, it's never going to be like that. Now, you've had a very special relationship with food. It seems like your, yeah. your entire life. I mean, would you describe your mom as a great cook or your dad? Did your dad cook too? You know, my dad is the breakfast champion. Uh, my, my dad, your parents yeah, cook? it's funny. He, my dad made breakfast. Dads are breakfast champ. Yeah. Like, even my husband. Like, no one can make an over-easy egg the way he can. Oh, um, when we would come back from church on Sunday, and my dad would make pancakes and eggs, and mm. uh, and that was also leftover day where we would take everything <laughs> out of the fridge, right? And we had to eat it all. But he's, it's fun, so it's funny. You met, what is it with dads and breakfast? Dads love weird. breakfast, I yeah. guess. I, you know, it's funny. Food has been like a very, uh, has been like a journey for me because my mom was a very good cook when I was growing up. I mean, we ate a lot of spaghetti and lasagna and eggplant and vegetables and, um, you know, then there was, so, so that's one chapter of my childhood. And then 
Um, and then sort of my mom remarried, um, my stepdad who I consider to be my dad, the breakfast champion. Um, and he was like a little more, this was, so when I was very small, we were poor. Now she's remarried and her career had really gotten on board. She, she's my mother is a therapist. And, um, so we were coming up in the world and then we started going out a lot more. So I kind of learned differently about food at that point. Um, but also when, this is interesting, when my mom remarried, um, I had never had a Thanksgiving turkey. It was the first, I was probably 10, mm. first time I had a Thanksgiving turkey. Um, I'd never had chicken and dumplings. I had never been to McDonald's or had a donut. Um, so... And part of that was because we were poor, but the bigger part of that was because my mom, you know, kind of just wasn't into all of that. And we just ate a lot of Italian food and that was what we did. Um, And then my mom divorced again and she kind of totally stopped cooking at that point. So that was really interesting. And then as an adult, so in my formative years, I didn't learn to cook at all. So when I became an adult, I remember speaking of sexism. I remember my husband, who was then my boyfriend, saying, you know, this is never going to work out if you can't cook. I wish I cooked more, but the problem is I'm I'm single, I live alone, and it's kind of depressing in a way to make dinner for yourself and then I have to do the di- clean it up. I don't mind doing any of those things if I'm doing it with someone else, which is why mm-hmm. I, I jump at the off opportunity to come to your house and cook with you. Well, yeah, you know, we have a very unique relationship. I would say it's like forged in garlic, in a way. Yes, we, we, Billy and I have been trying to test the proposition that there's no such thing as too much garlic. So one one recipe you make often yes. is chicken with 40 cloves of garlic. And it's so good. In, in like a white wine, buttery sauce. It's and delicious. And it's very simple. It's really it's simple. very simple, but very decadent. And also. I think the last time you made it, you had a hundred and something. hundred and eleven garlic cloves. And I don't know, like, was it? it? I, don't, I don't think it was enough. I don't, yeah. I mean, I could have gone bigger. And then I made um, elbow noodles with crumbled sausage and... Turnip greens. Turnip greens. And olive and, oil. And, and, and a lot of garlic in that. A ton of like, garlic. And it's still... And even your husband said, like, that didn't seem like too much garlic. No. There's no such thing. There's no such thing. So I think you and I both have a passion for Italian food. But I think what's funny, too, about our relationship is that, you you know, and I don't know if our listeners kind of know how we we really met. It was basically, you know, I was friends with your brother. Right. 12 years ago or so. And you had come, you know, down to the beach. beach. You just moved back Mm -hmm. from California, right? Uh, I just finished college, actually. Okay. This is why. Anyway, I'm losing track. But the the point is, your brother contacted my husband and said, hey, my brother's coming down to the beach, like, hang out with him. And, And my husband met you and then said... Billy, I just found your new best friend. So we were your new gay best friend. Your new gay best friend. It's true. Your new gay best friend. (laughs) So we were almost kind of like placed together in a way. Set up. Yeah. We were set up. We were set up on a date, and we and we had food in common. So this is just Mm -hmm. something that is is like what we do. Yeah, we do. So I I uh, want to talk about my favorite food memories from childhood. Um, my mom was a simple cook, but a good cook. We, and her, her best thing that she made, in my opinion, was beef stew. Oh, I love She beef had stew. an old crock pot that she's, she had like forever. And she would, she loved to just leave the crock pot on for hours, mm-hmm. you know, and like cook beef stew all day long. And she would always use Cam- uh, Campbell's cream of mushroom soup mm-hmm. for the beef stew. And, she, and there were carrots in there. And I think she put a little red wine, too, if I'm not mistaken. And it was so good. And one thing she did, which I would recommend to every mother or father, whoever's there at home, if you have the luxury of being a stay-at-home parent, is she would ha- she would often have something cooking or in the oven when we got home from school. And so you'd have this really stressful day at school 
and then you'd walk into the house and you would smell this aroma either of cookies baking or the beef stew or or chicken in the oven. And she did that deliberately because she wanted us to feel like we were coming home to this warm, welcoming place. And and this is probably why I love my mom so much. Actually, I love her for a million reasons, but because I just always associate her with with coming home to that that smell throughout the house and just all of a sudden you know you the tension goes out of your body um the one thing we didn't the one thing we didn't have a lot of as kids was interesting vegetables uh, it was generally green beans or a sa- or a iceberg lettuce salad with carrots and part of that was we you know kids always whine and complain about eating vegetables but part of it is my dad's not really a vegetable person mm-hmm. and my parents had a policy growing up, um, which came from my dad mostly, which is they would never force us to eat something we didn't want to eat, which I, which I think can be good and bad. But I, because sometimes you got to expose kids to a lot of things. But but I respected it because I I actually hate fish. It's unfortunate. It's the one big food category I don't like, seafood. And so they wouldn't force me to eat seafood. Um, and to this day, I don't like it. Um, so I'm glad they didn't force me because it really is just like a big part of who I am. But it wasn't it wasn't until college when I really fell in love with uh, with vegetables and realized it was like a great awakening. Oh my god, I love every vegetable in the world. You know, <laughs> I love this. I grew up eating a ton of vegetables, all all sorts of things. I mean, all kinds of cultural foods, all that. I I don't ever remember being made to eat anything. And I will tell you, I will never fight with my child about eating. I just don't. I've never fed my child, though. I uh, I've never spoon fed her. I guess, as you would say. Oh, that's right. Um, you let her pick up. We have a philosophy surrounding food in my child, and I'll give it to you briefly. Um, she's a breastfed baby. She's always fed herself. She fe- f- fed herself at the breast, and she knew when to stop eating. So, um, you know, I would make her like purees of whatever we were eating. I've never. I won't say never. I very rarely prepared her something outside of what we're eating unless I'm eating like something very spicy that mm-hmm. just would be I'd be a jerk to give it to her. Um so whatever we're eating, she gets a version of that and um it's put on her plate and she can eat it, not eat it, throw it to the dog, <laughs> whatever. Um and you know what? She's growing, she's great, she eats pretty much I can't really even think of a food that she really doesn't like. Um, so, you know, I, I won't fight about it. I, I assume that she is getting all the things that she needs. She still breastfeeds, so she, she's getting mm. plenty of nutrition. And, um, I, you know, I think the relationship we have with food is so important um, that I just I don't want to do anything to mess with that. What would be your death row meal? I love this question. Whenever I ask people, they're <laughs> Such like, an odd question. people are like, you're so morbid. Like, why would you be on death row? And I'm like, well, that's just, you just never a question. Know. Like, you never know. I'm not putting you on death row. It's, there's um, no other way to ask that question. My... Right? Because it's a, you have to, that you have to think if I, if I could have my last meal, what would my last meal be? It would definitely be like a whole lobster with drawn butter uh, Melon John, which is this like eggplant dish that I just I don't love. think I've ever had it. Oh my god, I have to make it for you. It's so good. Um, what is it? Just quickly. It's, it's eggplant, and you you slice the eggplant, you skin it, you slice it, you salt it, you stack it on plates, and then you put weights on them to kind of get the moisture out, and you let it do that for like as long, like twenty four hours as you can. Then you oil a pan, fry it on either side. And then with bread, with breadcrumbs. Nope, okay. nope. You just fry it by all by itself, and then you layer it with sauce and oregano in a pan, and oh. then you bake it. Oh God, that sounds so good. <laughs> it's so good. Um, so I'd have that, and I would probably have to go with some kind of noodles, like maybe just. Good old mac and cheese. Mac and cheese. Everyone I, almost everyone I talk to, 99%, mac and cheese is one of their favorite foods. And it's certainly one of mine. I mean, it, look, life does not get bad. Like, I'm lactose intolerant, and I will not think twice about downing a mac and cheese. Like, but it has to be the velvety 
mac and mm. cheese. Like, that's the best kind, you know, like that velvety mac and cheese. There's just nothing. The place I work, they do like a mac and cheese night. Mm-hmm. Um, it is just decadent. And let me just say. What would be yours? Oh, well, first of all, I think mac and cheese should generally be used with macaroni noodles, elbow noodles, which I use a lot. And spiral noodle. I don't know. I'm kind of a traditionalist. A, I, you know, elbow noodles are amazing, and I often use them in pasta dishes where they shouldn't even be used. But I, I just, I think there's a reason why it's called mac and cheese. Those, that's the shape of the macaroni noodle somehow is perfect for that dish. Anyways, my final <laughs> meal would be, um, I'm kind of torn between a mushroom feast, a like oh, twelve course really mushroomy thing with a cream of mushroom soup, and then like pasta with with mushrooms and sausage, oh, and now just, I just want that for mine. this giant kind of any kind of mushroom preparation you can imagine because I love fungi, so delicious. Uh, but another thing that I would consider would be. Chicken vindaloo. Oh, uh, vindaloo that's a good one. is an Indian dish with tomato and ginger and cloves. And um, I like super, super spicy food. There's never. Me too. The, 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 I, I once had a dish that was like on the Food Network for being one of the spiciest things ever. It was a habanero crepe. Uh, from a restaurant in San Francisco. And that came a little close to being too spicy for me. And I suffered the day after because that's the problem I'm with sure, spicy food. Yeah. But even that wasn't, it was not too spicy for me. They but sort it's of, so healthy for your body, right? It is. It I is. Mean, and they're, they're discovering that people who eat spicy food live longer. Um, and so, so chicken vindaloo and lamb vindaloo is more traditional. Um, but I have to be in the right mood to eat lamb. I do like it sometimes. I love lamb. And I, um, I would be really tempted to just have like rice with peas and non uh, bread. And okay, I'm starving. Chi- now. D- chicken vindaloo with dark meat. Oh, can we take a minute to talk about people who don't like dark meat on their chicken? When I was a kid, I, I didn't, but now I, mean, I do. I could see that about no. you. <laughs> because I'm such a white guy? I don't know. I just love dark meat. Like, I, I don't even care. Just throw the breasts, like, to the dogs. I love dark meat. I just, it has so much flavor. It's so moist. It's like, mm. oh, I just... I don't know. I love, I'm a boneless, skinless thigh, but I like the bone in with the skin thigh too. I like it all. And bone the chicken quarters, so leg quarters. Yeah. I mean, come on, people. So, what's your bottom line about food? Oh, okay. Well, there's so many of them. But, you know, I would say my bottom line is this I began my adulthood as an exceptionally bad cook. Mm. Terrible. I mean, the dishes I made, my God, you wouldn't you wouldn't want to be here. Um, so it's an interesting contrast to where I am now. But I think that for me, you know, learning to cook also brought me into a greater acceptance of myself as a like as a person and culturally as an Italian American. Um, so it's you know healed cultural wounds and helped me learn to accept myself. And I use it as a way to you know, bring people together and also to, you know, as a, as a learning, you're always learning when you're cooking. And I think that that's a really amazing thing about, you know, about food and about culture and about being in a kitchen and being active in a kitchen. Um, you have a wonderful blog, which you should plug right thank now. Thank you. You're right. I do have one, a wonderful blog. It's called uh, Bossy Italian Wife, and it's www.bossyitalianwife.com, where I share I share recipes. I share also uh, tidbits about motherhood and, and life as a married person. But for me, food has really been the vehicle in which I have, have driven everywhere in my adult life. And I... You really need a cooking show. You would be fabulous. Well, thank you. I Maybe someday I will. Maybe I'll be a late bloomer <laughs> like Julia Child. Um, but, you know, if it's not food for you, find something that gives you joy in that way. For me, it's been food. I just, food is is everything. My bottom line is the best meal I have ever had. Uh, there's a restaurant in Healdsburg, 
the town of Healdsburg in Sonoma County, California, where I worked for a while, and it's called Scopa. It's this tiny Italian restaurant with family-style food, and it's actually become highly regarded. I think it's on the top 100 list of restaurants in the Bay Area. Uh, reasonably priced, though, and you can never get a seat. It's so hard. So I, I, I go and eat at the bar alone, squeeze in, because everyone, all the locals are obsessed with it, and people from out of town are obsessed with it, too. And I could name any number of dishes from that place that are, like, pornographically delicious and beautiful, but the the best one was their mozzarella burrata. It's the mm. it's hands down the best burrata I've ever had because they give you like a big ball of it. A lot of times restaurants will skip on the burrata. Burrata is like mozzarella pumped with cream. Uh, if you've never had it, I think I'm describing it correctly. But anyways, so they would buffalo. Th- yeah, um, actually, I think theirs was just cow's milk, if okay. I'm not mistaken. But they they would serve it with grilled bread with lots of butter on it, really good like ciabatta bread, uh, and often with a little simple arugula side salad with a light lemon dressing, but sometimes they would have pickled eggplant with it. But just like lathering on that creamy burrata because you kind of puncture the ball of burrata and it kind of spills out a bit and just putting it on that buttery grilled bread and putting into your face. (laughs) The best thing ever. Best meal, best dish I've ever had. Wow. Well, on that note, we will be right back with our final thoughts. And now it's time for our final thoughts in which we talk about whatever we darn well please. Billy, what is your final thought? My final thought today is about the glorification of the culture of busy. We're always so busy, busy, busy all the time. And I think a lot of people, like busy is is their addiction. They're addicted to being busy. Um, and... You know, we always want to have something to do or an activity to be planned or a thing we're involved in. And I just have to say, guys, just knock it off. Just stop. (laughs) Stop what you're doing. It's insane. It's crazy. You know, what you need is to stop and enjoy your life with the people who are in it. If you find that you never have any time for anything... Stop. Just take a pause and enjoy the people you're with because, you know, at the end of your life, you're not going to look back and say, gosh, I wish I would have joined another softball league or, (laughs) you know, had had something else to do on that Saturday or I would have wished I took on a bigger workload or, you know, whatever. Um, I think that we don't have enough emphasis on downtime, Um, you know, just the art of doing nothing dulce far niente like just the simple pleasure of literally having nothing before you uh but time and and a little enjoyment i think you know this is something i i believe is very important and um you know we spend a lot of time in this house just just hanging around being with each other cooking food playing um it's hard to transition because people do work so hard in this country and don't have a lot of vacation time. Yeah. So then you're working, working, working all day, and then you get home, and it's hard to turn turn that off. People have to work. Yeah, uh, but, but then what happens is, you know, people come home, and then their kids are in twenty after school activities, and they're on their cell phones, and they're do- you just have to take a minute to put all that down. Limit your activities sometimes in the name of. Not a thing. And sit down for a family meal. Gosh every darn it. Every day. I mean, we sit down for a family meal every day. So many people don't. Um, and, you know, we, my husband and I love just to sit together, uh, enjoy a glass of wine, or he'll have a beer, and just watch a movie. You know, just enjoy the people that you have, because nothing is guaranteed. And, you know... It really is. You don't let your life just pass you by because you are busy. I mean, that that to me would be the greatest tragedy. That's my final thought. My final thought is Valentine's Day Ooh. movie recommendation. Oh. Yeah. There's, <laughs> is it a slasher film? <laughs> yeah, right. Yes, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's my love life. Uh, 
I uh, there's a film that I I've as a tradition I try to watch in in the lead up to Valentine's Day every year, and it's probably my favorite film of all time. It's an old black and white Danish film called Gertrude by the director Carl Theodor Dreyer, and it's about this woman who clings to an idealized, you can almost say adolescent vision of love that is uncompromising. And whenever her male lovers or ex-lovers disappoint her in some way, she just gives up on them forever, essentially. And um, and it, it begins with her leaving her husband for a younger lover... Uh, who's so hot, the actor in this movie is so beautiful. <laughs> just just P.S. But um, she's a really interesting character, and some have read her as a feminist character, because she has the power to say no, goodbye, basically. I, you, you've, you have fallen short of my extremely romantic vision of how love should be, um... I think for all three, it's generally because they're so obsessed with their... All three of her lovers or the men in her life, it's because they're so obsessed with their work. They're putting their work above their romantic passion for her. Um, and, And she's a polarizing character because... Yeah, you do need to compromise in life and in love uh, and in all things. But it's a very inspiring character because I do... It treats love like a religion. Uh, romantic, erotic love, like like this thing that she that she's the goddess of, that she's the priestess of, uh, the protector of, you could almost say. And as someone um, who writes poetry myself and... Um, I, I would say romantic romantic love specifically has been the most inspiring um, and serious thing in my life. The thing that I I am protective of in my own heart that I never want to get so I, I never I never want to settle really. I mean because there's so many things in life that you could that you have to settle on, and I I'm just I I do worship love very very much. And and so if you if you're in the mood for for a Valentine's Day movie that is a Saint Valentine's Day movie that elevates love to the highest possible thing, then watch Gertrude. You'll love it. It's beautiful. It's slow, but rewarding. You'll love it. That was like a. I love that. That was the perfect ending. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you guys for tuning in for another week um, on Honestly. We really appreciate it. And we'd like to encourage you to please go on iTunes, give us a listen, uh, share with your friends. But most importantly, if you think we deserve a good review, please do write us a little review on there so that other people can find our podcast, too. And subscribe. And subscribe. On iTunes. On iTunes. And that'll do it for us, guys. Have a great week. 